electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Happy Monday and welcome to The Exchange. It's getting ugly out there for bonds as we close out the quarter this week. The two-year Treasury auction just went pretty horribly. Since March 1st, the yield on the 10-year is up about 80 basis points. The 5 and the 30s inverted for the first time since 2006. What do bonds know? What don't they know? And what should investors do about all of this? Plus, President Biden speaking soon about his budget plan. It includes a new minimum 20% tax on households over $100 million. Can it happen? And would it work? And if workers have so much leverage right now, why is unionization seeing a big resurgence? All that and more coming up this hour. But let's start with stocks. Dom Chu is way over there with the numbers. Interesting. I am way over here. And the numbers are interesting only because we are seeing a mixed market and actually to the downside for some parts, despite the fact that we see Treasury yields dropping. So we'll get to more on that in the show. However, if you look at the major indexes right now, the indices, if you will, the Dow Industrial is down 185 points, 34,677. At the lows of the day, by the way, we were down 309 points. At the highs of the day, still down about 28. So tilting kind of towards the middle end of that trading range. The S&P 500, 45.34, the last trade off about two-tenths of 1%. And the Nasdaq Composite, 14,180, the outperformer, just about 10 points to the upside, relatively flat on the day. If you look at the cryptocurrency side of things, just over the course of the last month, month and a half or so, would you believe it if I told you that Bitcoin prices are up roughly 38% since the day before Russia's invasion of Ukraine? That's that right-hand side of the screen that you're seeing here. The reason why it's important Bitcoin prices are 47,437, up 5% today. We are now above a key technical level that some traders watch, the 200-day long-term average price of that particular Bitcoin. That's around 45,700, so keep an eye on Bitcoin prices. By the way, Ether, all of the other smaller coins and tokens out there, also catching a big wave to the upside over the last few weeks. And then, check out Tesla, because we are seeing positivity there. We took a little bit of a break from a multi-day winning streak on Friday. However, we are now about seven and a half points to the upside. A plethora of headlines, Kelly. First of all, Elon Musk tweets that he thinks he has COVID again. Then they're going to shut down production at a Shanghai facility for them because of the lockdowns there. And then Tesla says in a regulatory filing, it's seeking an authorization from shareholders at its annual meeting coming up to expand the number of authorized shares and what paves the way for what could be another stock split. That's what's giving that positivity there. So watch Tesla. By the way, it was just 2020 that they did their last one, their only one, five for one back then. We'll see if that positivity, Kelly, continues. Back over to you. It is firmly back in the trillion dollar stock club. Dom, thank you very much. All right, everybody, let's dwell for a moment on what's been happening with bonds this year, and especially in the past couple of weeks. The losses are piling up fast as yields continue to surge and investors bail out of the space. The 10-year yield has jumped more than 79 basis points just this month. Take a look at the move since the start of the year. We closed out 2021 around one and a half percent. 
Today, we hit 2.55% earlier on. And by the way, to Dom's point today, we're down 10 basis points off the high. Still, the larger point here remains. This has been an incredible acceleration, uh, really since the Fed's meeting, which was mid-March, right about here. So we saw it going into the meeting. It has certainly picked up steam coming out of it as well. And it's not just the 10-year. You can see similar moves in two-year government bonds on Government bonds overall uh, are now on pace for their worst year since 1949, 2.3% on the two-year versus barely more than half a percent back in January. So are we in the midst of a historic sea change in bonds, or is this just a bump in the road? Joining me now is Shri Kumar. He's president of Shri Kumar Global Strategies. It's great to have you on today because uh, what would your advice be to investors here, Shri? Should they look at a buying opportunity or, or get the heck out of the space? First of all, thank you, Kelly. Good to be with you. And I think the first point I would make is this is not a bump on the road. There is much more increase in the 10-year yield coming ahead. Uh, I have moved up my expectation from the 2% mark I had been keeping for the 10-year to 275. So we are still well below that level. Once we reach 275, I may have to up the target further. In terms of what the investors should do, they have very few avenues open. I think because of the fact that we have high inflation combined with moving toward a recession, which is what the inversion that you talked about, Kelly, on the 5 to 30, and then what is coming soon, the 2 to 10, because the 2 to 10 uh, yield curve on Friday was 22 basis points positive. And today it is 13. It is in going toward inversion in a hurry. And keep in mind that at the beginning of this year, we were at 80 basis points on the 2 to 10. So the, we are moving very fast toward inversion. So if you have a recession and high inflation, the investors cannot seek refuge in bonds because the bond yields are rising. They cannot re seek refuge in equities because equity prices get hit by corporate earnings being hit. So they have to find other ways. They have to look at commodities. They have to look perhaps at real estate, which is globally diversified. Right. They have to do a lot more searching, Kelly. And I think in my mind, that's what differentiates you from uh, others who are similarly bearish on bonds and uh, whatnot, is that you're more bearish about equities. Why don't you think equities can be a decent hedge right now? If the whole average, the S&P, is only down at 4.5% since January 1st, uh, which is pretty good so far. So why do you think that's all of a sudden going to take a turn for the worse? That's a great question. Look back. I think the Great Recession tells you what happened. There was an inversion of the 2 to 10 yield curve toward the end of 2006, which led me to say in October 2007, we are headed toward a recession. That happened to be the month the S&P 500 hit a record high. In the first half of 2008, equities continued to rise, suggesting a very strong economy. And then came the collapse in the final quarter of 2008. So do not be misled by high equity prices. They do not give you a good signal as far as the recession is concerned. When the recession hit, it's only then that the equities react. Shree, why are you convinced that we're going to have a recession when the shorter curves, those based off of the three-month, are steepening? Uh, they're actually at historic highs. And there are other signs that the economy is stronger than what we've seen in the past, everything from commodities prices to the labor market, you know, other parts that tell us it's not necessarily the same kind of signals that we saw just prior uh, to the last major recession. Kelly, the reason is, if you look at the 
T-bill yield or the three-month yield as the shorter short end and compare it with a longer time like a five-year, that is not a good comparison. The short end, nobody seeks refuge and puts 30% of their portfolio in overnight treasury bills. You have to ask the question, where can equity holders go to? Two to 10 or even a five to 30 is a reasonable alternative. If you can put away your money for two years or five years, but you're not going to change your allocation every three months in treasury bills, which is why I think it is erroneous to bring the short end into this comparison it gives you absolutely no indication about the outlook for the economy. Final question, Sri, what would you do with dividend paying stocks, uh, some of the materials names, other areas of the stock market uh, for pe where people could tactically think about exposure, even energy, which I know you like the commodities aspect of this. Um, what would you do with those parts of the market? I like the dividend paying co companies a lot more, Kelly, than growth equities. I think you are, if you are guaranteed that the dividends are likely to continue over a period of time, it could be a good safe haven. You could stay there until the storm passes, but do not go into, in a big way into growth equities. They are going to be hit, especially technology stocks, where I think you're going to be discounting with a far higher interest rate than you have been doing with the last two to three years. It's a major difference. Final point. Do not take into account the fact that Chairman Powell said that 1994 rate increase provided no, didn't result in a recession. The situation is very different. In February of 1994, the CPI inflation rate year on year was 2.5%. February of this year, it is 7.9%. It is the Federal Reserve balance sheet was very small. Now it is about 10 to 12 times as large as, as it was in 1994 with no corresponding growth to account for it. So the situation is very different. The balance sheet has to be cut back. The inflation rate has to be brought down, which is why the Fed is boxed in. It cannot pivot again. Yeah, and again, it's worth highlighting your perspective uh, as someone who was, you know, sort of in the low rate camp for so long. And now, as you've said, this is a very different environment and you see yields going a lot higher. Shri, great to have you on today. Thanks so much. Shri Kumar. Let's get a quick check on those five-year notes. So I mentioned the two-year auction that we had this morning. The five-year was top of the hour. Rick Santelli joins us with the results. Rick? Yes, we basically go from a D to a B plus. B plus is the grade I gave for the 51 billion five-year notes that were just auctioned off by the U.S. Treasury, the yield at the Dutch auction, 2.543%. Below the 2.55, the one issued was trading at, lower yield, higher price. If you want to sell something, it's always better to sell it at a higher price. The pricing is the primary reason for the solid grade. All the other metrics were very close to or slightly above average, except for one. Indirect bidders were a bit on the light side. I, I think what's fascinating with these auctions, of course, is, is that the the investors ultimately are having a very difficult time to try to interact with the shorter maturities. I fully expect that the seven year that we'll have tomorrow may go a bit better, the longer maturity, and indeed yield curves are making life a bit confusing, but let's not lose sight of several issues. The first is no matter what recessionary signal you may be looking at, there certainly seems to be a lot of pent up demand in the service sector as some of these numbers change post-COVID, at least in the U.S., 
and there could be a head of steam coming that could really put many of the weak strategies out of the reality of possibility. Maybe 2023 is when some of these signals for recession ought to be taken a bit more seriously. Kelly, back to you. All right, Rick. Thank you, Rick Santelli. Now let's get another perspective on stocks right now, which are a mixed bag today. Uh, but we are coming off two straight weeks of, of gains, I should say, for all of the major averages. The Dow right now down about 197 points. My next guest warns we're not going to see the returns we enjoyed in stocks for the past decade, but says we still have to be in the market. And where he recommends exposure may surprise you, especially after what we just heard from Shri Kumar. For more, let's welcome in Mark Tepper. He is the founder and CEO of Strategic Wealth Partners. All right, Mark, it's good to have you. You're going to say long stocks, long growth stocks on top of everything. So for investors who've just been conditioned by our previous discussion, make your case. Yeah, so look, I mean, the value versus growth trade, that's really gotten all the headlines since I think it was right around Thanksgiving. And, you know, from my perspective, I think it's just too late to be chasing value. We are stock investors. I don't think there's a lot of value to be had in bonds, unfortunately, when you look at at investing over a longer time horizon. So I'm kind of watching that value versus growth trade. And as it's starting to reverse course, which it has started doing only only two weeks ago so far, I want to begin picking off growth names. Now, I want to focus on durable growth companies, durable growers, not the speculative corner of the market, uh, like the the ARK Innovation ETF kind of companies. My goal, Kelly, for the next two years as the Fed is, is undergoing this massive hiking course is just to keep the ball in the fairway, right? Mm-hmm. Don't get cute. Don't try to swing out of your shoes. Take a nice, easy swing. Leave those, those stocks that are trading at 10, 20 times sales. Leave them in the bag. Stick with durable growers, defensive growth. One of the names I like is Medtronic. Just consistent growth. Uh, great company. So, yep. and, and let me again preface this by saying we have seen growth outperform in the past couple of weeks. And you mentioned Medtronic, but before yeah. I get to that specifically, is this the good kind of growth outperformance or the bad kind? Because the bad kind was the pandemic, meaning, you know, growth is scarce elsewhere, so stick with what's working. The good kind is. No, we have growth everywhere, so high valuation tech can collapse. What, 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 what are we in with this market right now? You raise an excellent point because all of a sudden, it, you remember the YOLO trade from, I don't know if it was yes. last year or the year before, GameStop, AMC. Those stocks have been substantially outperforming the market over the course of the last two weeks. So it, things are pretty crazy. The market's behaving rather irrationally right now. It, it, from my standpoint, you know, the million dollar question that I'm, I'm asking myself is, is the next 10% move higher or lower? So what do we see first? 5,000 on the S&P or 4,000? And Kelly, while I'm a long-term bull and I'm, I'm patiently waiting to employ some of our cash in, in some good, durable growers, I got to tell you, I think we approach 4,000 before we actually mm. resume the bull market. Okay, that's, that's helpful context. And maybe it's not such a different story than what we heard from Shri Kumar then. So let's close with Medtronic and why this stock of all stocks jumps out to you as the kind of defensive growth name people should look at right now. It's the kind of company where you can still see high single, low double digit uh, earnings growth. And, and obviously, look, we're living in a, a world where people are living longer, you know, which is a great thing. And, and when you look at the demographics of our society, we have to deal with an aging population. And, and you know, Medtronic, they are just, you know, a, a med tech behemoth, one of the biggest ones out there. 
lots of focus on heart valves and things like that. So they are there to make sure that we can all enjoy our lives for as long as possible and remain as healthy as possible. Mm, this is getting too grim. I, we got to just leave it there as we ponder mortality. <laughs> Mark, thank you very much for uh, both macro and micro thoughts. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Mark Tepper. All right, coming up, my next guest says the housing market is in the early stages of a substantial downturn, one that could see sales plunge 25% by late summer. He joins me next to make his case as mortgage rates close in on 5%. Plus, there's a billionaire tax battle brewing on Capitol Hill, with the White House proposing a new tax on high-income households. We've got the details ahead of President Biden's remarks next hour. The Exchange, back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Mortgage rates have absolutely surged in recent weeks, tracking the move higher in bond yields. The rate on a 30-year fixed mortgage jumped to just under 5% last week. It's up by 50% from a year ago. My next guest warns that will have a huge impact on the housing market. He says we're in the beginning of a substantial downshift for home sales, and he's expecting a 25% drop this summer. For more, let's welcome in Ian Shepardson. He's the chief economist at Pantheon Macroeconomics. Ian, welcome, and... I guess the only thing I wonder is about pent-up demand from buyers who are trying to get into this market. Could that help bolster sales in the months to come, even with higher rates and so forth? Yeah, there's not much sign of that at the moment. I mean, we've seen mortgage applications falling for three straight months. I'm pretty sure April's going to be the fourth straight month. And it's simply a response to this massive rise in rates. I mean, you know, this back in September, the third year rate was 3%, just over 3%, and now it's approaching 5%. Plus, of course, house prices have gone up since last September. So affordability has taken a real hammering, and, and people aren't dumb. You know, they, they, they can see this rise in rates. They can see the impact on their projected monthly payments. And so they're stepping away from the market at, at, at quite a rapid pace, and I just don't see any bottom to it just yet. So sales will follow where the mortgage applications tell us. You know, the stocks are certainly telling us this. The builders are trading it like six times forward earnings. It's more or less what we saw uh, back in 2006. The lending stocks have been absolutely terrible as refinancings have dried up. Even some of the stocks like Home Depot have hit a a softer patch lately. Here's what I don't understand, though, is where are we going to be in, let's say, 12 months time? This feels completely different from the housing bust. That was all one directional plunge. This time around, people need real estate as an inflation hedge. They have families, they have real demand. Work from home has changed things a lot. So I, I just can't figure out what, we're, what it's going to look like in 12 months' time. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because we, we certainly have seen this massive surge in demand for suburban single-family homes. And so inventory in that bit of the market is, is the lowest I've ever seen. It's less than two months' supply, which is, which is astonishingly low. And that's why prices have gone so crazy. 
But the problem is that there's this enormous barrier now in the form of these very high interest rates, which haven't peaked. I mean, perhaps when they, when they peak, and you know, I don't think that'll be till the end of the year, we might then see some people coming back in. But the thing is, nobody wants to catch a falling knife. And Nobody wants to be the last guy to buy into a market that's about to peak because then that's risky. You know, you lock into a, an expensive mortgage and you, you may have bought to the top of the market. Uh, having said that, you know, I don't think prices are going to roll over. Just, just to be clear, what I'm talking about is a big drop in home sales, which has already started. We've seen that in both new and existing home sales already. Uh, and they've got a lot further to fall. But because the inventory is so short, I'm not expecting prices to roll over. This is not 2006, 7, 8, 9. Definitely not. We don't have a crazy leverage boom. We don't have all those crazy adjustable rate mortgages resetting up five percentage points like they did back then. It's nothing like that at all. But we, we do have to unwind from this period of, of quite high demand, especially for existing homes. And that means that we have to see a period of adjustment. I don't think it lasts forever. I don't see a multi-year correction like we saw uh, back in the 2000s. But I do think we need to adjust in the face of what's been really quite a big spike in rates, which really hasn't peaked yet. It's kind of the case study for what the Fed's doing here because they, you know, more or less want activity to slow. Housing affordability has already gotten so bad. I mean, to kind of put what your point differently, we were probably going to see home sales plunge anyway, either because there were so few of them and the price got so out of reach, or in this case, because they're trying to kind of break the market. And you mentioned this is it will be a drag on GDP. But again, is this a healthy correction? I mean, is there a sense in which by slowing the market now, we could still have it sustain its expansionary cycle for the next, I don't know, five or eight years to come? Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I, I, we cannot possibly continue running with, with home price increases running at 16, 18%. That's just not sustainable. We need to see demand soften and we need to see inventory rise as more people decide oh, this is a time to sell in order to slow those price increases. That, that probably means lower volumes and that will feed through into businesses like Home Depot because, you know, sales of furniture and appliances and yard furniture and all that sort of stuff that goes with housing is going to weaken. But it's not going to collapse like it did back in the mid 2000s. And I don't think it's significant a broader rollover in the economy. And from the Fed's perspective, the other thing that happens is as house price inflation slows down, they can worry a bit less about rent because rent right. inflation is 40% of the core CPI. It's the biggest thing in the index by miles. And so when house prices are rising at 15, 16, 18% a year, the Fed gets very nervous about what will happen to rents down the road. Now, they're already picking up somewhat from the COVID lows, but if we can plausibly expect home price inflation to moderate back to something normal like 5 or 6%, I think the Fed could breathe a sigh of relief. So this is this kind of story that doesn't break the economy, but it's, it's going to be painful in the housing market specifically and those bits of the economy that depend on it. But the rest of the economy, I don't think needs to roll over. And, and, and again, to just to reiterate, I'm not looking for an 06, 07 type uh, catastrophe in the housing market, but it's so far out of whack. The shortage of inventory is, is so astonishing. The price increases are so crazy that it, it is vulnerable to a rise in rates. And when rates go up by nearly 2% in six months, there has to be a reaction. We yeah. can see that coming through in the data now. It really is just a question of how far it goes. And if you're right, it's going to be a very different feeling uh, this selling season from what we've seen in recent years. Ian, great to have you. Thanks so much. Ian Shepardson with Pantheon. Still ahead, the unionization efforts sweeping the nation. We'll look at why now and which companies could be caught up next. Stay with us. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. Dow was down 309 points. The lows were down 175 or half a percent right now, with the S&P only down a tenth of a percent. The Nasdaq up by a third of a percent or 49 points still. Let's get to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Hi, Tyler. Kelly, thank you very much. Former President Trump probably committed a felony by trying to stop Congress from counting the electoral votes from the 2020 election. That's what a federal judge says in a ruling that requires a lawyer to give a key document to the House committee investigating the January 6th attack on Capitol Hill. John Eastman had argued it is covered by attorney-client privilege. But under a legal principle known as the crime-fraud exception, the judge ruled that that privilege doesn't apply because Trump and Eastman were trying to conceal or commit a crime. Because the ruling is part of a non-criminal case, it does not mean anyone has been convicted of a crime, even indicted. The mayor of a town outside Kyiv says Ukrainian forces have retaken control. In a video message, the mayor of Irpin says Russian forces have been pushed out, although he says there probably will be more attacks. His claim has not been independently verified. And Russia's delegation has arrived in Turkey for tomorrow's peace talks with Ukraine. It will be the first face-to-face meeting in more than two weeks. Ukraine's president has said he's prepared to talk about making his country neutral if it will lead to a quick end to the war. Tonight on the news with Shepard Smith, as more workers try to unionize, will consumers avoid brands they see as anti-labor? That's at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Kelly, I'll see you in about a half hour. I'll see you then, Tyler. Thanks. Still ahead, President Biden zeroing in on Wall Street and the ultra-wealthy. We have the latest on his new proposed billionaire tax and new restrictions on stock buybacks, who it all impacts, and the likelihood of it actually passing. That's next. Welcome back. President Biden unveiling his budget proposal for 2023 and taking aim at billionaires and some businesses. Elon Moy is here with the details. Elon? Well, Kelly, the White House wants to raise taxes by $2.5 trillion over the next decade to pay for new domestic spending programs and to reduce the deficit. About half of that money comes from raising the corporate tax rate to 28 percent. The White House would also get rid of tax breaks for the oil and gas industry and tighten international tax rules. The administration is also going after the ultra-rich with a new proposal for a 20 percent minimum tax on those worth $100 million or more that covers both regular income and unrealized gains. It would also tax capital gains at the same rate as ordinary income for those making more than a million dollars. Now, all of this new revenue would help offset the cost of new investments in education, housing, and combating crime. Overall, the president's budget requests a 9.8% increase in defense spending, a 27% increase for health and human services. Education spending would go up by 20.9%. The SBA would get 21% more. And the budget for the Department of Transportation would rise by 6%. Now, the White House says it had three priorities in putting together this budget, fiscal responsibility, safety and security, and investing in America. But Kelly, this is really just a wish list if it can't get through Congress. Back over to you. Always is. Elon, thank you very much. 
Uh, let's dig a little bit more into these proposals now with my next guest, who says that while the wealth tax may not pass, some other forms of new taxes are very likely on the table. Joining me is Dan Clifton. He's head of policy research at Strategus. Dan, great to have you. So let's start with most likely to pass. Uh, in other words, things that people need to really start thinking about. Yeah, well, first, Kelly, thank you for having me. I think we've been in a three-month uh, break from tax policy ever since Senator Manchin said Bill Beck better is dead in December. Now we're in a period that as that Supreme Court pick goes through and gets approved in the Senate, there will be a big shift to tax and spending policy in the second quarter of this year. And with Russia, Ukraine and everything else going on, I just don't think that this has been top of mind for investors. And you're starting to see these negotiations begin to come back. So investors should be focused on where we are. Now, let's think about what the Democrats are trying to do. They're trying to pass renewable energy spending, about $600 billion. They're also looking at some health care provisions like expanding Medicare and Medicaid. If you put those two together, you would need about $900 billion of new revenue over the next 10 years. And Senator Manchin is asking for even uh, more tax increases for deficit reduction. There is some level of agreement on some of these tax increases that have gone through. One in the bill that passed in November in the House of Representatives. In that bill, you had provisions in there like taxing U.S. multinationals. Hmm. Extremely controversial. Europe would also have to make similar changes for it to have political visibility here in the United States. But it could go through. I think it's interesting that the president's budget put out a 28 percent corporate tax rate. That proposal was completely lambasted uh, by Senator Sinema last year. And instead, they looked at a 15 percent corporate tax rate. And then on the individual side, I think that Congress really settled around a wealth sure tax as a portion of raising taxes on individuals. That would include capital gains and dividends. What the president put out today is that on steroids, right. an unrealized capital gains tax on income over $100 million is probably a bit too far. And so you say, well, why did the president do this? He's trying to show that he's reducing the deficit so that he can win Senator Manchin's support for a deal, but he doesn't want to raise marginal tax rates, which has been the red line for Senator Sinema. Sure. So this is a very fine line that the president's walking. I would say that this is very aspirational, what he put through. And we'll probably see more traditional type of tax increases if the Democrats are able to get a deal. And that's a big if at this point, given how high inflation is. I, I like the way you describe that tightrope uh, that they're walking and what they're trying to do here. My sort of follow-up question would be, how are these proposals likely to go down with the public that is really frustrated with inflation? Um, right. Is this likely to be seen as more of the same that got us into this mess or as solutions that could potentially get us out or as irrelevant to that issue altogether? Kelly, this is my 26th year working in politics. I've never seen polling data so lopsided to one issue and one issue only, and that is that voters want Congress to deal with inflation. As much as the administration would like to say that these provisions are going to help inflation, voters know that it's not going to do anything in the in the short term. And so what's happening here is that senators that are in very uh, tight Senate races, let's say Georgia and Arizona right now, They'd rather cut the gasoline tax or do gas cards or right. type of provisions that are out there. And so that's why I don't think it's a 50 percent probability that this reconciliation bill can get through. And they may try and it may not work. And then you could see a pivot towards some of relief for consumers. What I've been arguing to my clients is pay attention to what's going on in the states. I got 22 governors right now 
pushing for some sort of state gasoline tax or rebate for consumers. Mississippi cut taxes uh, this weekend uh, and three other states did a gasoline tax in the last 10 days. So that's the pulse of where the voters are. That's ultimately where Congress is going to be. Maybe a portion of this larger bill or it may have to be separate. But voters are demanding a change on their cost of living going up so fast. Yeah. And this bill does very little to address that. That's exactly what I wanted to know. That's exactly it. Dan, thanks so much. Appreciate you helping Great. us uh, comb through this. Dan Clifton joining us with Strategus today. Still ahead from Starbucks to Amazon, workers across the country are organizing in ways we haven't seen in decades. The question is why now and what impact will this have on business? We'll tackle that next. Welcome back. Since 2019, union membership has declined in both the private and public sectors. But this year, the trend could be changing as workers across the country campaign to unionize. Kate Rogers has more on this spreading movement. Kate? Kelly, high-profile union drives and strikes are underway at a handful of companies from Amazon to Starbucks and REI with workers deciding to use their power to push for better pay and working conditions. Some workers I've spoken to seem keen to improve things for both themselves and their co-workers for years to come by organizing and collectively bargaining, even if they don't necessarily stay in those jobs for the next decade. Here's a 20-year-old working on the Amazon rerun election in Alabama who feels confident in the union shop there. What really drew me to this campaign was just this feeling that I needed to be a part of real change in the United States. Um, I believe that in order to bring about the change that I want to see, I have to be really involved in it. And I am a huge pro-labor person. And when I saw this opportunity come about and I knew that it would impact my coworkers and my own life very positively, and while it might seem like union membership rates are higher than they've ever been due to some of these campaigns, as you mentioned, BLS data tell a different story. In 2021, the union membership rate overall was 10.3%, down from 10.8% in 2020, which was due in part to a big decrease in non-union workers tied to the pandemic. Now, in the public sector, the rate is five times higher than the private sector at 33.9% versus 6.1%, even though it may feel much higher because all we're doing lately is talking about unionizing. Exactly. But and come on over, Kate, the, the data also makes it clear that this is still not changing at a macro level. For the companies involved, though, are some of these drives more likely to succeed and have a bigger impact at the corporate level than others? Yeah, so that worker that I spoke to in Alabama, Isaiah, who you saw on camera, said there are like 6,000 workers that are set to vote in Bessemer. This is their second election. Now, if you look at Starbucks, some of these union drives and votes for the NLRB are over within like 30 to 40 minutes, these hearings, because they have maybe two dozen workers that are voting the Seattle hometown vote, which was a huge win for the union, nine workers voted there. Hmm. Much smaller, a little bit easier perhaps for the organizers to get in, make sure everyone's on the same page. Whereas with Amazon, even though it feels confident, much, much bigger group, right? So it's unclear what's going to happen, and it's going to take way longer to count those votes. Absolutely, and this uh, whole trend probably can take a couple of years for us to figure out. Certainly, but the group think and collective minds amongst particularly young people that are getting involved was just so fascinating to me because it's not the union drive that your grandfather was a part of, right? No. It's so different today, but they want things to be better collectively, and I think that that's really unique. All right, Kate, thank you. We thank appreciate it. Good to see you, good by see the way, you. Kate Rogers. So why are we seeing workers push for unionization right now? Joining me is Steve Odlin. He is the CEO of the conference board. Steve, it's good to have you back. And you know, on the one hand, it makes sense to me because workers have bargaining power, so they are collectively bargaining. On the other hand, you could say, well, but can't, you know, aren't they, can't they kind of do this on their own? What do you think is driving this move? 
Well, I think we're, um, <laughs> you're exactly right. I mean, we're at an historic period of time. We're um, essentially at full employment, uh, even with about 2 million workers still out of the workforce versus pre-pandemic. You have worker shortages in virtually every industry. And so even though we have a seven and a quarter federal minimum wage, it varies by you know locality, you're seeing the average wage in these retail locations and uh, in, in warehouse locations quite a bit higher, 15 to $20 an hour. So it is a buyer's environment. They have the power right now. And so you see, uh, especially the two examples, Amazon and Starbucks, where predominantly very young people are looking for higher wages and they're, they're trying for all the leverage that they can get out of this. Now, you know, we're concerned about this uh, at the conference board from a wage price spiral standpoint. Um, you also have a 40-year high in inflation, and so people are seeing their real wages go down um, as they're trying to afford rent increases and food increases, energy sure. increases. So it's all that pressure at the same time that is coming to fore. But, you know, again, you said it, it's only 6% uh, prevalence from a union standpoint here in the private sector. Yeah, and as you say, this could be driven by cost of living squeeze, kind of the, the misery index that we talk about in, in the sense uh, for that to happen. Is it going to change uh, the big picture trend, which has been towards a smaller and smaller uh, percentage of the country unionized over the years? Well, I think, you know, look, unions have played a very important historical role in this country, you know, moving towards better safety, um, higher standards of work and benefits and so forth. But, you know, most of the employers today are pretty enlightened. Um, you know, even at Amazon, you've got a situation here where uh, they're paying between 16 and $27 an hour. They have full benefits, uh, financial accounting, PTO. They even have career choice where they're trying to bring people in and uh, take unskilled labor and train them to be uh, aircraft mechanics, nurses, and so forth. So there's a whole education element to this. This is not the same, the same situation that it was back in the 30s. So you have a very enlightened, um, r relatively enlightened corporate world today that it is not shareholder centric. It's a multi-stakeholder world with employees being very, very important part of this thing. So, you know, it's it's not the same. And, you know, when you put a third party um, in between, you know, hourly workers and non-hourly workers, it it, it is, uh, you know, more difficult to to um, to communicate and, and, and drive individual performance. So there, there are pros and cons here. It's not to be, you know, negative towards unions, but I, I think that a lot of the things that uh, these people are seeking are happening anyway, just due to market pressures. You think they might have some unionizers remorse? Well, you know, there are some, you know, they're going to have to pay two to five percent of their pay um, in, in union dues. Uh, you know, when when you have a union, they're representing all workers. Uh, they have to, you know, and so therefore people who are, you know, a meritocracy kind of goes away. And so people who are high performers don't get the extra bonuses. They don't get the extra promotions and so forth. So it's a seniority system. So there are some pros and cons. It just depends on what kind of envi environment that they want. But all of this is contributing, I think, to this, uh, to the potential of a wage price spiral, which mm. would be, you know, really uh, a very difficult situation. And, uh, you know, it, it's something else that the Fed is thinking about. You know, the Fed is, yeah. uh, is trying to react uh, very quickly to uh, the inflation situation, but this whole wages go up, prices go up, and you know where does it end? And Kelly, I think that's the the challenge here. Uh, where does it end? Absolutely, and you're right. Economists, Wall Street, the Fed—they're all watching to see how it pans out. Steve, good to have you. Thanks so much. 
Thanks, Kelly. Steve Odlin with the Conference Board. Up next, oil sliding on demand concerns as rising COVID cases prompt a Shanghai shutdown. What does it mean for gasoline here? We will get that in a moment. Welcome back, everyone. Energy prices falling today on demand concerns out of China, where they enacted more COVID shutdowns, this time in Shanghai. Crude was coming off its first positive week in the last three. It was up nearly 9%, but now currently lower by 6%, back under 107 a barrel. Gasoline prices also dropping today. Now, there's been some relief at the pump, the national average price falling about $0.06 cents over the past two weeks to 4.37 a gallon. But that's still almost $1.40 more than it was a year ago. Still ahead, this biotech name has been volatile lately and is sinking fast as it faces a key FDA meeting on its flagship drug this week. We'll reveal the name and the potential fallout. Welcome back, everybody, and check out shares of Amelix Pharmaceuticals, which are falling 30% today after the release of FDA documents ahead of a key decision on its ALS drug later this week. The meeting important both for the company and for the agency. Meg Terrell joins us now with more of what's at stake. Meg? Hey, Kelly. So Amelix is a small company. Before today, it was about a billion and a half dollar market value company. Of course, it's down today on this news, developing a drug for ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, which is just an awful disease, a neurodegenerative disorder that's fatal and doesn't have a cure and very few good treatment options. Uh, now, it has this drug that it's taken through a phase two clinical trial, and it's on that basis it's asking the FDA for approval. Uh, there is an advisory committee meeting on Wednesday where FDA FDA's outside advisors will discuss and vote on this drug and whether the evidence essentially suggests that the drug is effective. Uh, now, based on the stock reaction today, you can tell that people who've been watching this story closely are pretty disappointed with the FDA's take in those documents that came out. Essentially, the FDA reviewers suggesting that the evidence is not necessarily super compelling here. However, you are seeing the stock rebounding a little bit as folks uh, on the street are speculating the FDA may still go ahead and approve this. And of course, this all harkens back to the big decision on Biogen's Alzheimer's drug that happened last year was very controversial. The FDA essentially showing a lot of flexibility there for disease with few good treatment options, but then got criticized for putting that drug on the market perhaps before there was enough compelling data. So we are setting ourselves up again for a similar battle with a lot of patient advocates as well on Wednesday, Kelly. But there are other ALS treatments on the market already, Meg? There are, but they don't cure the disease and they really only provide a few months worth of benefits. So hmm. the community is really desperate for anything else that could potentially help. Got it. All right, Meg, thank you very much. We appreciate it, Meg Terrell. The biotech sector overall has been bouncing back this month despite the pressure on uh, Amelix today. And this was after a slow start to the year, but Lilly, Pfizer, Regeneron, Moderna all seeing double-digit gains in March. So what's behind that rally? Let's ask Michael Yee. He's managing director at Jefferies, and he joins me now. Michael, before I delve into that, I don't know if you cover Amelix, but do you have an opinion on uh, what the FDA might do here? Uh, hey, great to be here with you. And I think, uh, like Meg sort of mentioned, this is going to be a real tough call. You know, I think people are sort of grasping at the straws, hoping that the FDA makes a surprise decision, sort of like how they did last year with Biogen because of the unmet need. Look, I think that's a real tough call. I, I'd, uh, uh, we're not making a strong call on that, but I know there's some hope that, again, FDA is under pressure to do a lot of these things. I know at the time you were quite hopeful about Agilehelm, but we have seen a pretty bad kind of aftertaste from that decision, wouldn't you say? 
Absolutely. Um, so again, I think we're still under the view that FDA still does want to do these things for patients and patient advocate groups, um, appreciating it's a unique time. So uh, we are in a difficult times, and I'm sure we might talk about biogen. Yeah, and you'd think, okay, then this is not exactly a breakout moment for biotech, but suddenly, and Brian Reynolds actually flagged this to us. He said it's one of the areas of the market overall that he's kind of seeing some breakout behavior lately. What would you attribute that to? Yeah. Well, it's really interesting. If you go back over the last six to 12 months, it's obviously been uh, pretty terrible for biotech. And I'd sort of like to say, well, we've already had our punishment. You know, So you see a lot of the other sort of growth sectors of the economy uh, sell off. Biotech has already really taken a lot of that brunt, particularly in January and February. So number one, uh, look, I think there's a lot of short-term traders believing we could get a bounce here because it's oversold. Uh, number two, I do think a lot of people believe uh, M&A is still in the cards, both from Big Pharma, Pfizer, particularly making a lot of comments around M&A. And so I think there's a lot of hopeful thoughts on the oversold conditions here. And, you know, for those who kind of want to sidestep the COVID pipeline or, you know, there are people who want to bet on that and that's fine. There are also people who say what's going on with the rest of the industry. Um, where are your favorite plays right now? Yeah, well, I'd like to believe that as much as the sector has sold off and some of these names uh, Fate or Xilab or even Vertex, if you look sort of a 12-month chart, Moderna. These are all stocks that have had huge sell-offs. Uh, we do look to believe that fundamentally not a lot has actually changed. So names like Vertex, which we have called out, we added to our franchise top picks list in December. Stock's up, I think, 16% year-to-date and still think that can move higher. Um, names like Fate, uh, which has had more than a 50 or 60% uh, pullback, that stock could bounce back with a rally in the XBI. And even something like Xilab, which China stocks and China biotechs have had a huge pullback. But again, one to bounce, particularly if there's a rally back in the XBI. And anything you would specifically avoid before we go? Uh, look, I think uh, what we're seeing is uh, Moderna, you know, still hold rated, still can have a pullback. But what we have been saying, even though Moderna could pull back, um, is it does start to get interesting at 50 billion cap or down at 100, low $100 level. Moderna will start to get very interesting, a lot of stuff there, but still so many people focus on just COVID this year. Absolutely. Uh, Michael, great to have you today. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Michael Yee of Jefferies. And speaking of biotech, CNBC's Healthy Returns Summit returns this Wednesday, March 30th. For more discussions on these topics, it examines the intersection of innovation and investment with the sharpest minds in healthcare. To register for that, you can head over to cnbcevents.com. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.